Velkommen til live fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Mit navn er Lise Bak Hansen, og jeg præsenterer denne podcast med highlights fra det Kongelige Biblioteks kulturscene i den sorte diamant. Kan musikkens og klassikernes følelsesmæssige kraft skabe bevidsthed om bæredygtighed? Alan Gilbert, en af international musiklivs topdirigenter, deltog i det Kongelige Biblioteks del af Østersøfestivalen, Baltic Sea Festival. Gilbert er tidligere chefdirigent for New York Philharmonic og nuværende chef for NDR Elbphilharmoni i Hamburg. Og han talte med Nikolaj Koppel om den klassiske musiks følelsesmæssige kraft og om musikken kan mobilisere os til handling i forhold til nogle af de store samfundsspørgsmål som klimakrisen. Men han talte også om at arbejde som klassisk musiker og om de klassiske mesterværker han har arbejdet med over for den nye komponerede musik. Podcasten er et resultat af det Kongelige Biblioteks samarbejde med Østersøfestivalen. Der er et stort nordisk-baltisk samarbejde, som i år forbinder Østersølandene på en helt ny måde. På festivalen kombineres musik og samtaler, hvor nogle af regionens mest interessante personligheder og kunstnere mødes for at snakke om bæredygtighed og musik. Festivalen fortsætter indtil lørdag den 31. august. God fornøjelse. Alan Gilbert, welcome to Copenhagen. Welcome to the Royal Library in Copenhagen. And uh, ladies and gentlemen here in uh, in the hall, um, Alan Gilbert of course needs no introduction. So I'll just say it's an honor to be here with you. It's a great pleasure um, to be with one of the most outstanding conductors in the world and uh, at the same time a quite charismatic cultural leader of the world. Let's, let's not go too far here. No, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll keep it at that, okay? And also I'd like to say welcome to everyone uh, not here in the uh, Royal Library. Uh, we have uh, a lot of viewers and listeners uh, throughout the country here in Denmark. We also have at many libraries um, among, other, among other places. We also have Um, Bavaldhallen with us in Stockholm. Hello, Bavaldhallen. <laughs> and uh, even in Germany, we have viewers and listeners today. So this is uh, really a, a, a true get-together. And we are here today because of the um, Baltic Sea Festival, which is seven days with classical music, um, and also seven conversations about music and, of course, the theme of this festival, which is sustainability. And this actually is the first uh, of these uh, conversations and interviews. And uh, this, of course, uh, there is, of course, also today a concert, and, uh, which is being shown here in, in this hall as well, in a short while, which is uh, Britain, Britain's, Benjamin Britten's huge work, Noah's Ark, which has more than, more than 250 contributing musicians. And that, of course, takes place in Bavaldhallen and is broadcast, as I said, in many, many other places here in Scandinavia and in Germany. So, we will get back to the festival and the festival theme about sustainability. But, Alan, I'd like to uh, take a step back and take a more general view upon classical music um, as it looks today. Not least the, you could call it, the never-ending task of communicating and spreading uh, classical music to an ever-changing audience. Um, you, of course, yourself have done a, a tremendous amount of work towards that, to develop new audiences and so forth. But if you were to take a snapshot of the classical music, the field of classical music, as it looks today, and give me, let's say, three um, short headlines, how would that look? What would th- those three headlines be? Wow. Yes. I didn't, uh, you, you don't said make, you didn't want you to hear any of the yeah. questions. No, no, so. you, you, you just don't make it easy. I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a huge question and one that I deal with at least indirectly all the time because I'm trying to find my way and trying to, to think about how, how I can do my job as well as possible and what it actually means to do my job. And maybe it's that I'm... Well, I know I'm getting older, but maybe that's the reason that, that I'm thinking about 
the profession in a wider way than I used to, or at least I'm trying to. That is to say that when I was younger, I mean, it is hard to do what we do. You know, you're a pianist, and, and, and what we do as musicians is extremely challenging, and it can be enough just to worry about being prepared for the next concert and showing up on time and making sure we have a clean shirt and all these things that, that, uh, that are part of the sort of immediate and practical side of the profession. But I found myself more and more thinking about why we do what we do and what kind of impact it's possible to have, whether we can actually, in a direct way, make the world a better place. It seems very lofty, and I feel almost embarrassed to say that out loud, but at the end of the day, I think that's what we're doing, and we've made a choice with our lives to be musicians, and it can feel frustrating. It can feel powerless, in a way, because actually all we do is play music, and we're not solving the climate crisis, and we're not making the political landscape more civil, and uh, we're, not, we're not immediately curing cancer. Um, many things that uh, obviously would be nice to see happen, but in some way, if we can use what we do as musicians and as cultural figures and whatever platform we have and whatever notoriety we have as public figures uh, to help people move in the right direction, then I guess that's a priori a good thing. Um, I think that I'm not the only, I know I'm not the only person, and in fact I'm only a small contributor in, in a much wider movement among musicians. And so I guess one of those headlines you asked me about would be social engagement. I think that there are a lot of musicians who are trying to use what we do as classical musicians to make an impact, to send the right message. And um, I mean, I'd like to ask you <laughs> how, how to do that because uh, it, we're, all, we're all struggling. We're all trying to figure that out. But I have seen that um, uh, among many of my colleagues and it's, I think, an encouraging sign that uh, it's, it's not enough simply to show up and play a concert. But, but, um, but it's possible, hopefully, to use what we do as, as musicians to, to um, do good. Um, I think that's a little bit what the Baltic Sea Festival is about. I think that, uh, you know, it's centered, it's geographically centered around the Baltic Sea, uh, but it's also about the Baltic Sea. And we know that, we know that uh, uh, along with the climate crisis is a very immediate challenge to the integrity of the oceans and the waters around the world. We see the Amazon forest burning right now. It's all connected. And, um, Sadly, there are still many people who are deniers of the fact of climate change. And um, maybe, maybe by putting a spotlight on this and saying that we st stand for something and we want things to get better and playing concerts that are dedicated to this notion, um, maybe in some small way we can, we can make a difference. Um, that's the hope. Anyway, that's one of the headlines. I, that's, that's a very long headline. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but, uh, the but head, I, headline I, was in there somewhere, I think. I, I, well, I hear you saying something that I quite agree with, and that is that within the last, it's only about 10 or 20 years, there's become a higher level of consciousness within the field of classical music as to the world outside. Uh, the classical music world cannot necessarily be and looked like the classical uh, music world as it looked like, like 20 or 30 years ago because there's a world outside and it's not just knocking on the door, it's slamming on the door. And, and we see, as you mentioned yourself, uh, the climate uh, crisis as one of the major issues the whole world needs to deal with right now. And in that sense, the classical music, classical music can't just stand in a bubble of its own. Uh, so compared to when I was an active classical musician, uh, we didn't talk about that at all, not in any way, and that's not more than about 19 
years ago. I think you used, used the word bubble. I think there was a kind of bubble. There was this kind of sense of inevitability as if, as if nothing would ever go wrong with the classical music world and recordings were, were rife and, and there seemed to be unlimited resources. Maybe that's an exaggeration, but certainly there wasn't the sense of impending doom or challenge to the, to the field of music that, that we see now. I'm actually, generally speaking, an optimist. I don't think that classical music is failing. I don't think that it's, uh, it's in danger of, of um, extinction. Um, some people say, oh, we have to save classical music. I, I'm sure that there are, if anything, more people who are enjoying classical music now than ever before. But there's probably no, reason, no wrong reason to turn our focus to, to social change. Um, but I have a feeling that the feeling of uh, people's feeling that they needed to preserve the field of classical music has led them to look at other ways that they can sort of justify themselves mm -hmm. as classical musicians. Mm -hmm. um, if you look back upon what you have done um, towards uh, developing new audiences, reaching out to, to the younger audience as well, and I mean, this is something that everyone within the field of classical music is talking about more or less every day. How do we, how do we recruit new audiences? What have you done that you think went well, that actually, that actually was a success? And what have you participated in which didn't go that well? Well, it's, it's impossible to, to know really the long-term impact of anything you do. Um, you're right. It's something we talk about a lot, and, and sometimes it can feel that talking about it is all that ever happens. How do we actually do something that makes a difference? Um, I think that this kind of talk, for example, showing this side of who we are as, as people and as, as performers is is one of the things we can do to kind of demystify this mythological presence that classical music can have. And the thing that makes me almost more sad than anything is when I hear people say, oh, classical music, that's not for me. I don't think I would understand it, or I don't, I don't have a, an outfit to wear to the concert. I don't have a tuxedo. I mean, the, the, the idea that some people have about whether classical music or any music for that matter, is for them, is um, sometimes unnecessarily narrow. It's actually available and open to everybody. And more than anything, I think what we need to do to build the audience is to make sure that people hear that. Mm -hmm. And they know that even without preparation, even without training, um, it's possible to go to a concert or a presentation of classical music and immediately be seized by it. And there are, I think, a lot of ways to do that. Um, it's possible to experiment with the concert format so that some of the traditional formality of the concert, concert ritual is, is uh, broken down or eliminated altogether. Um, I think, you know, you see workers do that casual Fridays or something like that, and they'll have a concert where you're encouraged to come in sandals and short pants and a t-shirt or something like that. I mean, it's superficial, but that's one thing you can, you can do. I think it's also important to show the connections between music and other art forms, other genres, and um, having, having concerts that mix media, have jazz together on the same program as a classical program. I mean, there, I mean, don't get me started, I could go on and on about the different possibilities, but at the, at the end of the day, I think it, it's about finding ways to make what we do accessible and, and, and grabbable and not, not um, overly epic so that, it's, so that it's intimidating. I've enjoyed doing projects that, that have combined drama and visual arts and theater. Um, opera, obviously, is a way to do, to do that. But um, in New York, we, we did a number of presentations that, that um, were theatrical and changed the concert hall into something that people were not used to seeing. Um, I mean, a lot, I mean, lot of different the, possibilities. Within the, within the last 100 years, classical music has also been um, a way to show which social status uh, you were in. And, and it, it even could be looked upon as something which um, kept us and them apart. 
because often classical music moving into the concert halls in the beginning of the 20th century was something you needed to pay for. It, it wasn't uh, something that was uh, out um, in the open for everyone um, to hear and listen and enjoy. And I was at a concert in London not that uh, long time ago, and um, it was, they were playing, it was the, the London film, and they were playing um, Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony. And after the third movement, um, there was this young man sitting two rows behind me who was so moved by the music that he, of course, after the third movement, which ends in triumph, he thought that the symphony was done, and he, <laughs> he uh, stood up and began to clap. And he was, I mean, he must have been a beginner, I assume, and he would, but he was so overwhelmed with the music, with the energy from the orchestra, and the whole, you know, the, the, the music had really taken... Uh, I, I, I'm terrified to hear where the story is going. I hope yes. he wasn't censured and... and that, that was the problem, because the next, oh, the next so minute... It was so tragic. Yes, it was, uh, I, I was not that happy either, because the next minute, of course, the, 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 the police of the audience were, you know, telling him to sit down, and he, he was, uh, you know, he was really almost expelled from the audience um, because he didn't know that there in Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony is one more movement. And it doesn't end in triumph. It actually ends quite differently. But the thing was that they really tried to do and us and them uh, that's, border. And that's that's um, shameful, shameful and that's, behavior, and they should that's not, not have the, done that. That's not the music, and oh. it's not even the, the, the uh, concert hall or the, the concert situation as an institution. It's the audience. Yeah, no, that's, that's um, well, I mean, I think we can agree that that's really, really unfortunate. Yes. Because if someone is moved by the music, if someone shows appreci appreciation, what a great thing. Yes. I mean, and, and to have a natural response, that's what we're looking for. And it's how rare that is. Mm. Yeah, that's really, it's criminal. They should, yes. shouldn't have done that. I have a Tchaikovsky 6 story as well. I was in, in, uh, in school, and I heard a performance, and the conductor a very well-known conductor, whose name I will not mention right now, um, uh, turned around and actually stopped the performance when people clapped after the third movement of, of the Pathétiques Symphony and proceeded to give a lecture explaining how the symphony is a sacred form and should not be interrupted and you have to allow the architecture to exist in its purest integrity and mm. it was such nonsense. And, 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 you know, it kind of served the conductor right because then at the end of the concert, when the symphony actually was over, Nobody did the applause was so yeah. lukewarm yes. because everybody was, was intimidated into not being able to respond in mm. a natural way. Um, well, let's hope that that doesn't happen too often. Yeah. It's ridiculous but, I mean, because there is no wrong way to show appreciation. I mean, in the age of Mozart, you, you needed to clap between... The they would movements. repeat movements. Yes, they, they would, would clap while the music was... And they would split symphonies up. They yep. would do the first movement and then do some other things, some improvisation <laughs> or have, a, have an yes. aria, and then they'd finish the symphony later. In the, I mean, it was this, this idea of... I mean, I agree, Tchaikovsky Sixth is an incredible arc. And the, and, the, and the devastation you feel after that false sense of victory yes. in the third movement is, is only possible if you hear the last movement after having lived through the first three. Yes. But it's so natural to, to, yes. to cheer after that third movement. But when I bring friends who are unacquainted with the concert situation within the, the field of classical music, and the, the, the one thing they always ask, and they almost don't dare to do anything, is... When do I clap? Yeah. And <laughs> I, I think the answer is when you feel like you yeah. want to show your appreciation. With, with the risk of the police. Well, you know, it's nice. It's nice sometimes. I admit, I don't, I don't mind when people don't clap in, in the middle of a symphony. But I also don't mind if they do clap in the middle mm. of a symphony. So, what, so, so, I mean, it's impossible to give a... a, a a single answer to the question of how, how would we prefer it was, because there is no s simple answer. But I, I imagine that we, we don't necessarily want to go back to the time of Mozart when everything was a, almost party-like circumstances. Uh, when Why do you say that? 
If everything was a party, wouldn't that be nice? Well, maybe we do. <laughs> no, I mean, anyway, I, I understand what you mean. It's nice to have some sort of decorum, and, and, and part of what makes a concert special is that it is a special mm. event. And um, you, can, you can show up in jeans and a T-shirt and, and enjoy the concert, and I certainly do that myself. Um, but part of what makes it special is that it is a kind of sacred ritual, mm. and to feel that you're going to experience something out of the ordinary and, okay, I'm going to dress up for this. That also can add to it. So it's, there's, but it's not necessary for that to be uh, the response. And I, I think that people should be allowed to experience concerts in the way they want. And that includes not disturbing the experience for others. Mm. So I think, you know, if you start talking and you know, rattling your program and eating candy during the music so that the people around you are distracted. That's one thing, mm. but clapping after a movement, I think we should agree that that doesn't cross the line into disturbing behavior. You said yourself uh, right before that, that um, classical music has um, once in a while be, been eclair, uh, declared um, towards the state of extinction. Um, and Let's face it, classical music has been uh, pronounced almost dead or predicted dead uh, several times, uh, even 100 years ago when, when the appearance, uh, when, when um, radio and the gramophone appeared and, and people could suddenly sit at home listening instead of going to the concert hall. Um, then uh, along came rock and roll music, which was a punch in the face, not only towards classical music, but to the establishment of many things. And now, nowadays we have the internet. Uh, it's not that many years ago that Christian Zimmermann interrupted himself because someone was, was uh, filming his um, concert from, from the audience and he said the, um, the, uh, the, the, the negative influence of the internet and YouTube is, is immense. So many, many villains, many predictions, uh, but classical music is still very much alive. But... How is the patient doing, in your, in your opinion? <laughs> um, I think, I mean, I love trolling through YouTube videos of concerts and, um, uh, and seeing concerts on the internet as much as anybody. I think there's nothing wrong with that. Fortunately, there's still nothing that can completely replace the experience of experiencing music live. It is very special to be in a room with a group of people who are breathing the same air and having the same emotional, even spiritual experience. I think there is something that I don't believe can be duplicated, and that's, that's good, because mm. it means that there's a reason for live music to continue. Mm. And, and, um, there and maybe, are... maybe now more than ever, because we can sit on our screens, more or less experiencing the whole world anytime, anywhere. Exactly. But the sense of being in a room and sensing something which is now and only now is is incredibly beautiful and yeah and i agree more than ever because it's so common for people to experience life through the filter of a screen mm -hmm. um but you know i just it's apropos of nothing but i was just reminded of a of an experience i was talking to a group of conducting students in in um shanghai And um, classical music is flourishing in China. It's unbelievable how many musicians there are. And, and um, one of the things that they, the students were asking me is, how do I learn about the traditions of performance? How do I, how do I experience concerts and, and performers that, who don't come to China? And I said, well, you can watch... YouTube videos, and they all kind of looked sheepishly around because they're not supposed to mm. watch it. YouTube is mm. not supposed to be there, but they have VPNs, and it's possible to do it. And so I kind of winked at them, and I said, well, you know, you can look at this. And I gave them some names that I thought they could listen. I could see them writing it down. And of course, they don't, they don't actually look at YouTube, but I'm hoping that they were <laughs> able to um, somehow experience these yes. things. And it's great that that can happen because mm. now... In a, in, I think in a good sense, the world is, is getting smaller because of the internet. There are many positive and, and incredibly strong educational possibilities that can happen just because of the access. Um, but, uh, you know, it's something that, that um, 
you know, we talk about all the time, both in the concert hall, but also at home as parents, you know, with the kids who are on phones all the time, you know, to actually... You see that also at concerts. You yes. Know, people go to their kids' concerts, and yes. they don't look at what's on the stage. They're holding up their phone to film yeah. the thing, and so I just, you know, just look at the concert. Listen yeah. to this. It's happening in front of your face, but yeah. that's another story. No, Hi, that's kids. not you guys. <laughs> I think they're in the Bearbald Hall and watching, and now they're probably cringing and covering their faces. <laughs> well, um, I'd like to move on to, to Carl Nielsen, because we, we agreed on talking just a bit about Carl Nielsen being in Copenhagen. But, but I'd just like to end this, this, this first uh, chapter off um, because you said that within the last, I think you said 10 years or maybe even 20 years, that you've been more and more searching for a why um, as to why do we keep on playing, why do you and many other fantastic musicians keep on Um, playing this fantastic music, which uh, in many cases is 100 or 300 years old, and and have you are you still searching? Have you are you getting closer to some kind of definition as to what it is classical music actually can give citizens of the world in this digital era we are living in? Um, I know it's a huge question, yeah, but it, I mean, no, I mean, I I. No, I don't feel like as if I'm any closer to the answer. It's a little bit as if, you know, the world is expanding and the more you, if the if this sphere is your knowledge, the surface area that is touching the unknown is bigger and bigger as you, as, as, mm. as the knowledge expands. Mm. Um, I, it's not only the why of music, because I think, you know, I'm in the middle of, rehearsing Matthias Passion to do next week with the Swedish radio choir and orchestra. And and there are moments where I'll be sitting looking at my score, literally just with the score open and not listening or anything, just looking at the music. And I, I can feel a tear coming into my eye just because there's something so stunning. And when I rehearsed the unbelievable Swedish radio choir last week, It's a piece they've done many times, and and we're all familiar with the music. and And I could see there were suddenly moments where people were just almost overwhelmed by by the music, and that that can still happen today. I think is inspiring, um, and that's certainly reason enough, I think, to pursue it. Um, but more than the, the why or the kind of existential why of of of, of uh, behind our choice to to do music, I think. Um, using it's it's related to the to the social engagement that I briefly touched on earlier. Why do we do performances? Is it possible to create a bigger meaning um, to the performance in the way that the Baltic Sea Festival is about sustainability, or in the way that Yo-Yo Ma is using his Bach project to play all the six Bach suites, not just not just uh, for many people, but in specific geographical locations where a, a message of shared humanity is necessary. And, you know, he went down to the border of, of, uh, of Mexico and Texas to play there, and he you know, wants to play the 38th parallel and wants to go to the West Bank. And, and, and um, that kind of why also. Yes. You know, what we as musicians can do to make um, human social, and even political statements. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to, uh, to Carl Nielsen, one of the great Nordic composers, and we are in Copenhagen, so let's talk about a Danish composer, um, which, well, I think you could say he's one of the most well-known composers from Scandinavia, together with Greek and Sibelius, probably, you would say. Um, and we're sitting here at the Royal Library, which stores an impressive amount of original Carl Nielsen material. Um, um, scores, chamber music, uh, piano music, um, symphony scores, and so forth. Also, uh, uh, a lot of his letters are, are being preserved here. I'm so eager to go look. I have, this is my yes. first time setting foot in this building, okay. and I haven't had the chance to, oh. to explore. But I think you need to I'll wear get, gloves. I'll get, yeah, <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure. I'll get to that, though, hopefully. Um, and it's very appropriate to talk about Carl Nielsen because you obviously did a huge effort together, uh, um, among other places, with the, the New York uh, Philharmonic um, towards uh, Nielsen's music. 
Um, so tell a bit about why you uh, picked up on Nielsen and, and, um, and what you found. Nielsen is a composer I came to relatively late. Um, and it was through performances at the New York Philharmonic. My parents, as some of you may know, were violinists in the New York Philharmonic, so I grew up in New York around this orchestra, so I heard many, many concerts and rehearsals mm -hmm. by the orchestra. And I will never forget um, one performance. It was with Herbert Blumstedt conducting the fourth symphony, The Inextinguishable. Yes. And it must have been the first time I heard it because it, it hit me like like a ton of bricks. It just completely knocked me out, and I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was really unlike anything I had ever heard before, and, 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 and it was thrilling. In, in, in what was it that was so thrilling compared to what you've heard before? I don't before? know. It, just, it was just from moment to moment. It just didn't let go, and, and, of, and of course, you know, the end is, is uh, you know, with the battle, and it's just uh, it's, it's an amazing, amazing piece, and... and um, that kind of sat in the back of my consciousness for a while, and I, I didn't do a Nielsen symphony myself for years after that. I didn't hear very much Nielsen after that. Um, I later learned that Leonard Bernstein, one of my predecessors at the New York Philharmonic, was a huge Nielsen lover and champion, and did a few of the symphonies, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. and, and did uh, them here as well. And did them here local, as well. Local orchestra. Yeah. And... Um, I went to I went to um, Stockholm to be the chief conductor of the Royal Philharmonic, the Royal Stockholm Philharmonic, and it happened that some of you may know the name Mats Engström, who was our artistic administrator at the time, is a Nielsen fanatic, completely crazy about Nielsen, and 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 um, he. Um, you know, he's Swedish, but I think he felt a real kind of ownership and, and a proprietary love of the music, and he made sure that I got to know all the symphonies. Mm -hmm. And I started to perform them and program them um, in Stockholm. And um, one of the things that I, I decided to do when I got to New York was then to do a, a exploration, a traversal of all the symphonies, and mm -hmm. it happened that... that the, the record company Da Capo was interested to to to, to take take the uh, performances for for CD recordings, and um, it's it's been fascinating to me because it's there was a there were a few years where we did t tons of Nielsen in New York and people seemed to really like it and and uh, there was always a strong response, um, but it's a little bit as if the 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 and I hate to say this because I think it's really too bad, but it's as if somehow whatever ripple we created by throwing the pebble in the water has kind of calmed. And I, I, I don't see a lot of people playing Nielsen mm -hmm. these days, and I'm not sure why that is. Um, Sibelius you see a lot. Mm -hmm. um, people compare the two symphonists, I think, kind of for the reason that they're Scandinavian, that's the only reason I can think of, mm. but because they couldn't, no they couldn't be more different, in fact. Yeah, that's true. Um, and equally valid and equally great and equally accessible. Uh, you know, there's nothing about Nielsen, I think, I mean, he's quirky and unusual and strange, and, and, and some of his, uh, especially the later symphonies, get, get bizarre, mm. but in a kind of wonderfully human way. Um, I, there's nothing about his music that I think is difficult to, to grasp. I'm not quite sure why, it's, uh, why it hasn't... Uh, totally caught on uh, around the world, but um, I'll continue doing what I can because I totally believe in the music. Mm. I think it's incredible and um, very personal and, you know, has all the hallmarks of great music. It really is great music. I think, I mean, somewhat, sometimes you hear people talking about a kind of Nordic sound, and they actually do uh, compare Nielsen with Sibelius and not really Greek, but, but still, uh, there is, in my opinion, very few, uh, there are very few similarities between the two of them. And I cannot really hear, maybe it's like we talked about before, it's, we talked between, uh, about the difference between Copenhagen and Stockholm. I, I can't see what Copenhagen is. I cannot, I can hear Carl Nielsen, but it's difficult to me to actually point out because I've grown up with him, I've even recorded him in this very room. That's cool, that's very <laughs> yes. cool. And, and I've listened, my uh, grandfather, who was a composer and musician, played Carl Nelson my whole life. I, I, it's almost like you know a, a chair you've seen since you were seven years old. 
standing in your, in your home, you can't see it anymore. So I can, for me, Nielsen is Nielsen. It would, be, it would be really sad if we actually could, in very convincing terms, describe what made a composer yes. that composer. Yes. Um, it's impossible to do, and that's why we have the music. Um, yeah, Nielsen is really unique, and, and for me, spiritually and emotionally, completely different from Sibelius. I love Sibelius as, as well, but I... I they're not, they're not cut from the same cloth at all. And I, I'm not sure what it is that makes Nielsen instantly recognizable as Nielsen, but there is something there. And um, it's... It doesn't sound like so many others. No. You can say that. It's very much from the Germanic symphonic tradition. You can absolutely hear um, their, their, their elements of his, his orchestral sound that even you can compare to, to Elgar and... and, and uh, and um, other 19th century romantic composers, but um, there's nobody like him. Mm. Um, let's move on to the focus of this festival. Um, as we uh, mentioned earlier, this uh, festival does have great focus on sustainability. And I'd like to hear, uh, Alan, what, what are your thoughts on this? This is uh, a music uh, festival with, with focus on sustainability. Um, do you really believe that a festival and a message like this can, can change the minds of people? Uh, in a way, it's a bit of a bar- paradox, isn't it? Because um, flying across the globe is very much a part of the classical music uh, industry. Um, you need to transport conductors and soloists and, and at times even 100 people in an orchestra from city to city. So it's, it's yeah. not that sustainable, is it? No, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of... Um I don't think it's too far to go to say that it's a kind of existential crisis for musicians because, as you say, almost by definition, in order to do what we do in the places that we do them, we have to get there. Um, and um, very often it's by plane. I took the train here this morning, mm. by the way, from Stockholm. Yeah. Um, that was the uh, first thing you told me. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, we were talking about, about, about sustainability, and it's, you know, it's a small gesture, but um, um, I think you know, they say that, they say that um, the meat industry is actually as bad, if not worse, than the aviation industry for the climate. And um, one thing that I think is heartening is that if everybody ate a little bit less meat, Mm. that would make a big difference. Mm. And similarly, if everybody flies a little bit less, by definition, it will help. It's not the answer, it's not the end of the story. Um, But I think we are at a point where people have to take personal responsibility to do what they can individually to help the situation. Beyond that, we're even at a probably a more more crucial um, inflection point in the whole story of climate change and climate crisis because there is only so much that individual people can do, and it's going to have to become a matter of public policy, mm-hmm. and politicians are going to have to do something because there's only so much we can do, no matter how little meat we eat or how how rarely we, we fly. Um, again, as I said, we're musicians. What can we do? Um, I'm trying, and I would love your help, and I'm happy to kind of publicly announce this hope that I have is, is to create a, 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 an, a, an alliance of classical musicians, performers, soloists, conductors who travel a lot, who agree to do something it's deliberately vague. I don't know what the right thing is, but if we all agreed to try whenever possible not to fly, to try whenever possible to do whatever we can to aid sustainability, to commit a percentage of our fees to the right object of, of carbon neutrality, um, it's a very complicated subject. I've been doing research about it, and there's not a lot of agreement about what the best thing to do is. People say, oh, plant trees, and then people say, oh, that's not good because then you have to make sure that the trees 10 years from now are taken care of. I would say that we're going to do something. We're going to try to do something. And even if it's not perfect, I think a priori doing something and trying to do something is better than not. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are some orchestras who are d- taking some 
quite radical measures as to you know being kind of almost the avant-garde of 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 trying to reduce uh, CO2 imprint. Yep. Um, orchestras who are ju- who are not um, transporting any of their conductors and soloists yep. by plane. Yep. Um, is that too radical? Do you think? I think, practically speaking, it would be very difficult um, for certain orchestras continue to continue to exist as the kinds of organizations they are if they did that. Um, I feel horrible saying it because I think it would be nice if we could do that, but. If, um, if, if the New York Philharmonic wants to engage a conductor from Europe, I would... You can't really spend 30 days on the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say that there is a certain balancing that you have to do. There are kind of artistic demands and artistic exigencies that should be considered. Um, Selfishly, I would like to be able to continue to conduct orchestras in, in the United States. It would be very difficult to do if I just said I'm not going to fly anymore. Um, but um, I'm thinking about it. Mm. It sounds really pathetic, but at least we're thinking about it, mm. I would say, mm. because that's, it wasn't even a subject. Mm. Um, I remember talking to a, a conducting colleague uh, of mine, must have been, 30 years ago, and, and he was bragging about how many flights he had, he had taken, mm-hmm. and, and I thought it was so cool. You know, wow, he's really you know, active, he's, he's got a career, he's flying all over the place. And now, I think the, you know, there's a radical kind of flying shame, you know, that whole shame of flying thing that's happening. Yeah. That's a little bit, I think, drastic, uh, um, but I think we all feel it a little bit now that there's a sense, okay, we should, we should try to moderate our, um, our tendencies just to think, okay, we can just jump on a plane and go anywhere. Um, I know orchestras that, certainly now I'm starting in, in Hamburg at the El Philharmonie uh, Orchestra in a couple of weeks, actually, as the chief conductor, and mm-hmm. we were just, just last week having a discussion about touring and whether it's important to tour. You know, why, why bring an orchestra, for example, to, I mean, I conduct in Japan, regularly. Japan has many wonderful orchestras. Mm-hmm. Do they really need to have this constant parade of international orchestras um, who are coming to play when they already have many orchestras there? In some artistic sense, I would say yes, but I wouldn't have even asked this question 25 years ago. Now I wonder, is it really necessary? And we have to really justify why do we do it? Um, I think for orchestras themselves, touring is a very positive thing. It's really the kind of pressure and the special circumstance that goes around the tour really does lead very often to artistic growth, and that's a nice thing for the orchestra. And without the, without the, without the impulse of, of having to tour, you don't necessarily achieve that kind of artistic growth in the same way. I'm not saying it's impossible. Um, I like being able to tour with the orchestras I conduct. Um, but I think we really have to question why we do it and to what extent it's necessary. I mean, just think about the carbon footprint or the Im- impact of mm. transporting. It's often more than 100 musicians because there's staff and instruments and it's, uh, it's, it's dramatic. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know what the answer is. It is, um, it's, it's, it's a very huge issue. Uh, and I, I think it's, you might say that uh, at least there is some progress to be seen, for instance, in a festival like this, that you actually have this focus of a festival. And uh, f- to me, that is a, a huge step uh, as compared to 10 or 20 years ago, where uh, festivals were more, f- more festivals in, for, the, for their own sake and not so much to to convey a message to the audience. And um, in that way, I mean, things are happening uh, and and things need to be happening uh, as of now because as we know, um, if we don't do something quite soon, um, we will have a true crisis, not only the the, the situation we have now, but, but far more serious than now. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, the science is clear. It's not idle speculation. We know that if we don't do something exactly. now, we're, yes. you know, we're, we're in, in, uh, in deep shit. Okay, and uh, quite in two minutes, actually, we are, we are, we are saying goodbye to uh, Berwald Hallen. Um, next Saturday, uh, you will be um, conducting one of the uh, 
true giants of music history, Johann Sebastian Bach, as you told us, it will be his uh, Sing Matthew Passion. Um, and that will be in Babelhallen that we are saying goodbye to in just a moment. But before that, I'd like to, for you to um, ask a question that we can pass on to tomorrow's talk, which is not in Babelhallen, but is in Riga. And it's a talk like the one we've had here today, and it will be the, um, the prelude to the uh, Rheingold, um, according to Isapeka Salonen, uh, as the concert is called. So, do you have a, a question that we could pass on uh, for tomorrow? Well, at, just where, where we are in the conversation here leads me to ask, because I understand that it's not musicians who are having the conversation, but more public figures and maybe from the political side, how do you see the nexus of politics and culture in terms of, of solving the, the problems or trying to address the issues that are facing the, the planet? Um, are there ways that people from the cultural world, musicians, can use their public platform to help efforts? And to what extent is supporting the arts actually self-serving in terms of the political need to, to affect change. Um, say a bit about how is the, um, I mean, you've been in the U.S. for so many years um, as the principal conductor of the New York Philharmonic. Um, how is, and now you, you're living in Stockholm and soon you'll be beginning in Hamburg. Um, what is the difference between the, the, the the climate, the circumstances which uh, the classical music is uh, living within in the U.S. compared to the to Europe. You're talking about the non-controversial kind of climate now, right? Just yes. The, no, yes. the atmosphere, the the yes, the feeling. Yes. Um, well, well. In, for instance, the in short China, answer is that there's there's no describable difference. I mean, people are people, and, and, and what we do is essentially the same. I'm the same person, whether I perform in New York or Cleveland or Berlin or, or Copenhagen. Um, and so I present myself to the audience in the same way, and more or less people respond in a similar way. Audiences are different. Um, tastes are different. Um, expectations of repertoire are different. But these are kind of I would call them low-grade differences. Fundamentally, it's all the same. Um, that having been said, um, naturally, the, the, the culture and the expectation, the climate surrounding uh, the concert life in different places, it's different, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, I'm having to, for example, get to know um, Hamburg in a new way. I've been conducting there for 18 years, I think the first time I conducted was back in 2001. Um, and even so, now as chief conductor, I have to find the best way to interact with the audience, to speak to them, to, to, to make a connection. But that equation is, I think, unknown even to the people who have been there all along because of the new hall, the incredible new Elbe Philharmonie, which has changed the landscape there. Um, I guess I said the best way. I think the, there is no best way and there's certainly no right way. Um, it's about um, building up a trust and, and making a connection with the audience. And I think it, you know, just as people are different and people from, you know, we were talking about the differences of people from different backgrounds, different cultures backstage. And, you know, again, luckily, just as it's impossible to describe Nielsen, it's impossible and maybe not even desirable to try to pin down how you would describe people, but uh, that's, that's what audiences are. They are people, and there's a kind of aggregate of, of, the, of the collective consciousness, and, uh, and I guess finding the right way to read it and hopefully being yourself while you're doing that is, is what we try to do. Uh, it's not an answer to your question, but it's kind of amusing on the, kind mm -hmm. of the subject around that question. Is, is the uh, Europeans, European audiences, are they more sophisticated than the American, or is that just a, a prejudiced I mean, way of seeing it? Well, I mean, I would never... I, no, I, I, would say, I, I don't think you can say that, because how can you talk about the European audience? 
when when it's you know it's it's like <laughs> saying all you know all Danes are this this way, you know. It would be, be. But do they it tend be, to it be, would be more ridiculous and and not to mention offensive? But but. Um, but in, in terms but of programming, in terms, for instance. No, I would not say that. No. But it really depends where you are. It also depends within a city what the what the what the expectation is. For example, in New York, New York is a big place. There's no one New York audience audience. Yeah. And we, we often commented that when we played in Lincoln Center, mm -hmm. there was one feeling in the hall. And then when we played in Carnegie Hall, which is a, a just very close, yes. 10 minute walk, yep. it's, it's a completely, it's different, completely different feeling in the hall. And there must be some overlap of audience, but even within New York City, there's a very different feeling mm -hmm. to those two audiences. And then if you go across the park to the 92nd Street Y, which has a very distinguished concert series, another feeling altogether again. Uh, and then downtown at the, uh, at the Le Poisson Rouge or, or different, different venues that, that present concerts, different again. So I think it's wrong and dangerous, not to mention impossible, to, to generalize that, that way. People very often ask me, oh, how would you compare uh, American orchestras uh, as compared to German orchestras? Mm. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's a meaningless question in a way, mm. because there, you know, there's so many different orchestras, and, and uh, you know, the Berlin Philharmonic is not the same as the Bayerische Rundfunk. But still there are some, some, some quite um, uh, important differences as to funding. And does that in any way, I mean, uh, pr uh, private funding being so much uh, part of how uh, classical music uh, continues to survive in the U.S. compared to Europe? I've just, I've just spoken against generalizing, but I'm going to generalize here. <laughs> um, I, I think that um, the trend is very much the same, mm -hmm. both in, in, the States, in the States and, and in Europe. I think America is maybe a little bit farther Uh, down the path towards fully private funding. Europe doesn't have the same culture of, of needing to have private funding because still it's true that the, the governments and the, and the public funding are, are more supportive of, of the arts, I would say generally. But Although it's going, under pressure. It's going down. Yes. And so, uh, you know, I remember when I was in, in Stockholm, um, I kind of expected when I started there that fundraising would be mm. part of my, my job there because that's very much part of what a music director in the States mm. um, does. I hadn't been a music director in the States at that point, but I knew that. Um, and it really wasn't, wasn't the case because there, there's, there's very little sort of socializing in order to, to cultivate sponsors. Um, and there's also not yet the, the legislation that makes it easy for people to be philanthropic to cultural organizations. They're, they're not the tax benefits that, that, that exist in the United States. So there's going to have to be a legislative change in Europe before that starts to be more the norm. Um, but I think it's going in that direction because I think governments are tending to, mm. to cut arts funding, um, which is unfortunate, but probably a reality. Mm -hmm. How about contemporary music? Still no differences as to how adventurous and how much we, um, we uh, are able to keep that it part of... It depends on the situation. I mm -hmm. think that's very local. Mm -hmm. uh, it, and um, I'm, I actually, you know, people have said that I'm a strong advocate of contemporary music, which I, I hope I am, mm -hmm. but, I, but I also don't think of myself that way at all. I don't think of myself as a specialist, and I kind of resist the categorization of music into sort of classical music and contemporary music as if somehow there's something special mm. or, or separate or removed uh, about what's happening in contemporary mm. music, because it's all music, uh, yes. and it's all part of one continuum. And um, I think that actually it can turn around and backfire if you make too much of a point of the sort of specialization in contemporary music because mm -hmm. it does treat it as something that needs special treatment. Mm -hmm. um, But still it's a fact that contemporary is, music is... Yeah, people are, people are afraid of what they don't know. So, the, so the, the thing to do is make sure that they know 
mm-hmm. what what it is, um, and uh, that can mean including contemporary music on 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 other programs to force them to listen to it, mm-hmm. if you will. It's not really how I like to think about it, but if the, you know they might come for the Beethoven Symphony, but you actually make them listen to something else as well, um, but not just for a token reason. You don't choose something just to, to sort of force feed this sort of bitter tasting medicine down their throat. It's important to have a real reason to 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 play anything that you program, and and uh, very often I will speak in a concert to discuss what it is about the new piece that I like because. Beethoven symphonies don't necessarily, they can use it sometimes, but they don't necessarily need an introduction, but a totally brand new piece that's in an unfamiliar language may be helped by a sort of opening the door so people uh, are not totally shocked and overwhelmed uh, when they hear it for the first time. That's the thing, If if you think about contemporary music, you're hearing something very often that is in a new language. If you go back to the time of Mozart, even a new symphony, people had more or less an idea of what the language was going to be. Mm-hmm. But today, it's, it's a free-for-all. There are composers who, who might write one note that just lasts for a long time, or you might have something that's so packed with instruments and information that it's just this completely overwhelming, kaleidoscopic, glittery moment, or you'll have something that's repetitive, or you'll have something that's very lush and romantic and full of traditional sounding harmonies. You never know what to expect if you're hearing a new piece. Mm -hmm. So part of the challenge of new music today is just not knowing what language you're going to have to be translating and listening to. Um, So it can be useful to play examples or maybe even play a piece twice so that the second time they hear it is, is it's, uh, it's more familiar. Um, I think it's important not to, um, not to forget that it's still music, though, mm-hmm. and that they're just because there are no rules and, and things are not um, necessarily all in the same style, it doesn't mean that, they, they, that you can't uh, get into it right away, but you have to open the door. Sometimes it's enough just to say, you know what, I really like this piece. Um, it's about five minutes long, and you'll hear three minutes into the piece, there's this instrument back there that plays, you know, he only plays one note, just watch for that. Mm-hmm. And that's enough to make people listen with yes. open ears. It's yeah. not a brilliant thing to say, but just almost anything can sort of break down the barrier that lets people in. Mm-hmm. If, we could, if we could look into the future... Uh, look into the the mus- music world of like one hundred years from now, two hundred years from now. Hopefully, there is a world. <laughs> that's, that's that's the first. But, thing but I let's know. let's yeah. uh, let's insist on assuming there is. there's a world. Yes. Yeah. Um, how do you think uh, the, the the classical music world of of, of what would it be twenty one twenty would look, or even twenty two twenty? And and what music is class? Will they be listening um, to the contemporary music? Sorry, uh, of our time as classical music in a hundred years from now. I think some things. Yes. Yeah, I think some things. It's impossible to know because um, obviously it's impossible to know. But um, if you look back to um, you know, Beethoven famously did his so-called Academy concert in which he presented the world premieres of the Fifth Symphony, the Sixth Symphony, the Fourth Piano Concerto, the Mass in C, <laughs> A Perfido. This was a contemporary music concert, remember. And all of these pieces were being choral fantasy, all being heard for the first time. <laughs> yep. um, I don't know if people thought, or if even it was an important question then, to, you know, will this music endure? Um, Must have been an some, ex- interesting experience. Yeah, I mean, my guess is that they probably didn't know, and they probably wouldn't even enter their minds to to worry about such a thing. Um, but I have a feeling that Beethoven will endure, and I'm sure there are others. But think of all the composers that didn't, that haven't remained current mm-hmm. um, from that time. Yes. You know, we know Beethoven, we know Mozart, we know Bach, obviously they have survived, but there were hundreds, if not thousands, of other composers who were lost to history. Yes. There are many, you know, the, that's, that's the other thing with, with so-called contemporary music now. To have the expectation that every piece you hear is going to be an, a lasting masterpiece mm-hmm. is unrealistic. Mm-hmm. It's just a question of percentages. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of pieces that, sad to say, will probably never last and never be heard heard uh, of after, you know, after they're played for the first time. Um, uh, but maybe there will be some pieces that, that will last. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, if I listen to, um, I don't know, it's the first thing that came into my mind, I, you know, Ligeti's Le Grand Macabre, which I just did uh, recently, I have a feeling that that is the kind of music that will last, mm -hmm. or John Adams' Harmonie Lera. Mm -hmm. um, these are pieces that I think are classics and, mm -hmm. and will, will remain, but of course it's impossible to say. Well, I think uh, time has run out for us. It's, uh, it's five o'clock. The concert will commence in just a few moments. So it's been a huge pleasure to meet you and have this conversation. So Thank thanks so much and good luck next Saturday. Thank you. And, uh, what, a, what a pleasure. Thank you. Again, thank yeah. you very much. And thank you, thank you all. for being here today. Du har lyttet til en podcast fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Husk, at du kan abonnere på podcasten i din foretrukne podcast-app. Hvis du kunne lide, hvad du hørte, så del det gerne med andre, der også kunne være interesserede. Hvis du har kommentarer til podcasten, så find Den Sorte Diamant på Facebook, hvor du også kan holde dig orienteret om kommende arrangementer i Diamanten. Podcasten er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på Det Kongelige Bibliotek, og musikken er af Søren Jacobsen.